1: Well the weather outside is barely less than ideal and the fire is gas and not real. But the California vibes, they grow. Let it flow, let it flow, let it flow. All right, five more days till Christmas, Ashley. I know you've been done with shopping for five months, and except for that, I haven't seen I haven't seen this handmade Christmas tale. Well, <laughs>
2: I knew we were doing a Christmas episode and I was trying to get inspired by all your wardrobe changes this past year. So I was like, <laughs> how can I channel my inner Jeff Daly? And I thought, uh, Charles Dickens attire. I am actively wearing a bonnet of my own design and make that I'm going to be wearing out to Carol and have fun and go to a show with friends. Which you are all dressing up, by the way. I'm talking like top hats, bonnets, like long skirts like I even bought like a petticoat long skirt ruffle underneath my like it's legit okay I don't I don't do things half ass I do things whole ass like it's going to be amazing so excited look look at this hat for anyone who's watching the video I got the holly for our super producer holly you know I'm trying to you know keep it real and then this beautiful piece yeah. yeah and then this beautiful piece while I was home over Thanksgiving I stopped at one of my favorite thrift shops with my brother and I discovered this beautiful fur shawl, which I have learned is a very wonderful, generous value that I got rather inexpensively and just got back. So it will also be a part of my attire when I go out caroling because I am that person, ladies and gentlemen. That's what I do. And I'm so excited. I feel adorable. I'm like on a little holiday, little, mm, I'm looking at myself in the camera and I'm like, ooh, ah, anyway. Happy holidays, everyone.
1: <laughs> All right. Happy holidays over there in Indianapolis with a uh, super producer, Holly. Uh, I I left my Marine court Santa hat at the post. Um, but this, this is this pretty, you know, Semper Fi spirit themed here.
2: Is it cold I, in LA?
1: I mean, the, I mean, in L.A., it's L.A. cold.
2: Is the weather outside frightful, as you said?
1: No, it's very less than ideal, but it's not frightful. Mm. And right. I have the gas fireplace over there. It's runs on gas and not really real. I, I don't know say, if you heard I my lyrics.
2: I, I did. That's why I'm like, ooh, that's funny. Because I think on the reverse side, it would be like, in Virginia, it's rather quiet. And I, you know what? I'm not going to try and rhyme right now. But on the Winkle opposite Winkle. side wark, wark. you want me free verse i'll try no, it
1: no 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 we 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 don't have gonna, time for that we the, don't have
2: time okay it, uh, we don't that free
1: verse will cost us so it, it, <laughs> it really will it'll cost some listeners likely uh so yeah toys christmas toys. children
2: let's, let's let's talk about it all right so Marine Corps. after s- Marine, yeah i'm <laughs> Marine After 75 years, Toys for Tots reaches more kids around Christmas than ever. This is from WTOP News. So for 75 years, Toys for Tots has been nearly synonymous with Christmas, making sure kids have presents under the tree every year. WTOP spoke with the top Marine in charge of the campaign about the program's long history and how, it's, and how large its mission has become. So for all of those 75 years, Toys for Tots has been... An official authorized activity of the United States Marine Corps Reserve, which is made up of around 100,000 active duty reserve Marines above everything else above the physical toughness and valor in combat. At the end of the day, we are the value values based organization, said Lieutenant General David Ballin and top Marine, excuse me, the top Marine for Toys for Tots and commander of the U.S. Marine Corps Forces Reserve. I think that Toys for Tots allows us yeah oh excuse me all right so I think what Toys for Tots allows for us is to demonstrate what we believe in and who we aspire to be in all the best ways he said we're doing something on our own time to help people we don't know because we think it's the right thing to do Ballin has served as the commander of the reserve since 2019 and is based in Arlington Virginia whoop whoop My backyard, ladies and gentlemen, he said that early on in his career, he might have seen Toys for Tots as a distraction from keeping him and his Marines combat ready. Fascinating note. I'm a little bit more mature and a little more worldly, says Valen. Toys for Tots is a critical opportunity for us to interface with the American people and demonstrate our values beyond traditional ways. Marines spend time with kids and families who receive the gifts, and they spend hours with an army of about 60,000 civilian volunteers with Toys of Tots Foundation. This out this is an outstanding thing. Uh, so when people see these people together, or so when so when you see these people together, you might have 27-year-old marine gunnery sergeant who is a combat veteran sitting right next to a 68-year-old grandmother and they align for a single mission driven with enthusiasm and positive social energy. So the Marine Corps Toys for Tots started in 1947 when Diane Hendricks made a Raggedy Ann doll and wanted to give it to a child who wouldn't otherwise have a toy for Christmas. But there was no organization at the time that distributed toys. Her husband, Marine Corps Reserve Colonel Bill Hendricks, gathered 5,000 toys in Los Angeles area and targeted orphans who lost parents in World War II. General Clifton Cates, who was the commandant of the reserves at the time heard about the effort and ordered all Marine Corps reserve units to start similar programs in their areas. Yeah. A little Snapple fact. That's so cool.
1: Ooh, oh, I, I held it while you were reading. Every time you said, "I know
2: you were doing so good. Every
1: time you said Marine, I, so well. you know what? there's, there's a couple of things. One, I don't like that they said an army of volunteers. Uh, they could have said a battalion. Whatever. Uh, The other thing is, I do, I do see a similarity between uh, the combat mission and the um, the Toys for Tots mission in in that you are coming together, you are doing, you are overcoming an obstacle. uh, The enemy being not joy on Christmas. Wait, what? Uh, The enemy being what is the enemy? How do I describe this enemy? The fact that kids don't have toys on Christmas is, is the enemy and who better to defeat an enemy than my beloved United States Marine Corps. Hurrah.
2: Okay. All right. I'll, I'm going to give that to you. Maybe you're struggling <laughs> over there, trying to figure it out, wrap it up, put a bow on it, make it pretty, yeah, yeah. make it seasonal and festive.
1: So it, yeah, yeah. It's a great 75 program. years, 75 years. That's outstanding. You know who else is outstanding? You. Excellent point.
2: Excellent but answer.
1: Show's not about the show's not about me. Uh, one day I'm gonna one day I'm gonna interview myself, and it's gonna be joyous. No, Holly's saying no, but you never know. You never know.
2: Oh, uh, our ratings.
1: Today we're gonna be joined by retired U.S. Navy Commander Yusuf Abul E E nine, like the. Mm-hmm. E9 rank. rank. All right. Commander Abdul E9 served 28 years of active duty from 1994 to 2022. He began his service as a medical planner after 9-11. As the need for Arabic linguists became dire, his career path changed, and he served as a director of North Africa and Egypt and assistant director for Arabian Gulf Affairs under Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. He later joined the Defense Intelligence Agency and became the subject matter expert and, center, oops, center, and senior counterterrorism advisor on violent jihadi groups in the Middle East. Commander Abdul I9 has published multiple books on these topics and we'll be back to talk with him, talk with him about all of this right after the break.
2: American values and patriotism. The American Legion advocates for upholding and defending the United States Constitution, equal justice and opportunity for everyone, and
1: discrimination
2: against no one, youth education, responsible citizenship, and honoring military service by observing and participating in patriotic and memorial events. We are veterans strengthening America.
0: We are the American Legion.
1: All right, Alphas, I hope you have your clearances in order, because today we have someone deeply who was deeply entrenched in the intelligence community and is also intelligent. Huh. Two, two takes on the same word. So, uh, uh, Commander Yusuf Abul-E9. You got it. Like, yep. Like the rank E nine all right, thank you for being here today i'm Jeff Daly. I was not an E nine or a commander well i'm a post commander in the American Legion, but. Um, thank you for being here, I I'm, I'm out in LA and Ashley is over there in DC so we're all over the place, and we are here for you and are so excited, uh, thank you for being here.
0: I appreciate that it's a, it's a privilege and a delight to be with you.
1: And we here, here's how we kind of roll. I don't know how this happened but ashley gets to go first and she'll ask she'll ask you uh a question or two and then uh then you come to the nice one
0: all right sounds like a plan
2: it's like good cop bad cop <laughs> oh no bad cop oh, and right. batter cop
0: <laughs> there's a the coin toss so ashley won.
2: <laughs> all right well we'll get started so Susie, I would love to know a little bit about, you know, your military journey, right? So you're a Navy guy, does some stuff. I'm Army. I forgive you. We're here for you anyway, all the above. But I digress. I would love to know a little bit about your your military journey and just some of your career pivot points that have.
0: Well, thank you, Ashley. No, uh, Absolutely. Uh, I uh, I I've actually been, uh, retired uh, this January, so uh, this January will be one Yay. year that I've been active duty retired, and uh, it's been 28 years and one day. <laughs> to Congratulations! My to my absolute surprise, actually, one day, and uh, it's because I reported to officer school on New Year's Eve. I reported early, waiting for the class to form, and that's where the one day came from, to, uh, to my great surprise. But I joined the uh, Navy. Uh, in, uh, in January of 1994 and retired in January of 2022, New Year's Day each time. And uh, essentially, um, uh, my, I, my 28 years, my first uh, seven years, uh, uh, I served in, uh, as a medical intelligence and medical service corps officer and I retired as a medical service corps officer. But my first seven years, I uh, uh, essentially worked as a, a medical intelligence officer, medical planner, and I uh, then uh, deployed, I'm dating myself actually, uh, my deployments all go back to the first Liberian Civil War in the 90s in Monrovia. And back then I was cons- we were involved in a, a non-combatant evacuation operation with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit. And then we spent about seven months there uh, on station uh, with the USS Guam on the horizon, uh, reinforcing the American Embassy uh, in Monrovia, as well as evacuating more citizens out of that uh, heinous civil war, frankly. It was absolutely heinous. Uh, My job was to worry about getting you on an operating table as quickly as possible, and or to worry about the force health protection of the Marines and sailors on board uh, carrying out that mission. So I worried about medical evacuation routes and medevac routes. And I proceeded to do that, really, uh, with the fleet. I I, I did two tours in Bosnia. I did uh, implementation force and stabilization force, uh, again, as a medical planner. Uh, and then I did uh, Desert Thunder and Southern Watch, in the Gulf. And I got to tell you, Ashley, uh, uh, I grew up in Riyadh, the Saudi capital, and that's where my childhood home is, and where I and I where I learned the Arabic language as a kid. Um, and uh, uh, there was even before 9/11, there was a dire need for me to kind of run interference with uh, various port call. Uh, we were we we're doing ports of call. Uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, I helped my skipper, for instance, uh, navigate the Suez Canal, it's a 32 hour, 16 hours each way. Uh, and uh, my job primarily was to be a translator for the pilot if needed, and to monitor radio traffic and any threats uh, that are emanating uh, that happen to be in the Arabic language. Uh, I also did that uh, when we get went, entered into the Persian Gulf. Uh, uh, during my time before 9-11, I also did two bright stars where uh, exercise Bright Stars as a uh, kind of a liaison. And I, li- I liaised with uh, uh, Egyptian military intelligence and Egyptian special forces that provided a protective bubble around our American forces, uh, participating in that multilateral exercise in Egypt and the Egyptian Western Desert. Uh, it's there, by the way, that uh, I uh, also ha- had one of my most challenging translations, which is uh, at the time, uh, three-star general Lieutenant General Tommy Franks, uh, he was the most senior commander at Exercise Bright Star and I was his linguist. And he had a few uh, Arab, uh, uh, Middle Eastern partner nations uh, who uh, were artillery units, armored units with live ammo for this live fire exercise. And uh, let's just say the Arabic had to be precise. You don't want to mess that up. And uh, for that, uh, to my great surprise as a junior officer, uh, when I was in the Gulf, uh, I was on the bridge after a long evolution. Uh, on the bridge, uh, monitoring radio traffic uh, uh, for the safety of our battle group. Uh, I was presented an Army Accommodation Medal by General Franks uh, for that service and exercise Bridgestone. But uh, essentially, uh, uh, Ashley, uh, 9-11 really changed my uh, my career. It was like the pivot point. My twenty eight year career. It changed. It, it impacted me both professionally and personally. Let's, let's unpack it personally. Personally, I was uh, actually selected at the time to go to the Joint Military Intelligence College, now today called the National Intelligence University, to earn a master's in strategic intelligence. I had entered the Navy, by the way, from graduate school with two master's degrees, and I was direct commissioned into the Navy. And uh, so uh, I was uh, there to earn my what would be my thir- third of four masters, because on active duty I got... Two other masters, but that was my first one on active Yes, I yeah. love
2: this, Yusuf. Yeah. Everyone yeah. makes fun of me because I got two masters. No, yes, no you're I got a good four, company. I tell
0: you, I had yes. a lot of people make uh, fun of me too, and so you need I to catch up for your doctorate. So, uh, yeah. which I'm trying to do right now, actually, since I retired. <laughs> I'm, Rose, I'm So
2: proud of you! This is exciting. Yeah, go on. It. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: no, I appreciate that. But uh, essentially, Ashley, I was uh, I had finished a meeting at the Pentagon, and I I, I was going to go attend orientation. At Bowling Air Force Base, uh, at uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, where the school was, and it was nine eleven, September eleventh, uh, two thousand one. I had uh, just finished the meeting, and I figured, okay, let me catch the nine forty shuttle to take me from Pentagon to uh, uh, DIA to the Bowling Air Force Base. And I, I knew about Tower One. Uh, someone waiting with the shuttle with me had told me about Tower Two. We were talking about it. He was a complete stranger at the time. Now I know him and we actually write to each other, wishing each other a happy birthday every 9-11, essentially. And, uh, but at the time, he was a total stranger, really a colleague stranger at DIA. And he told me about Tower 2. And I tell you, uh, he would then proceeded up the shuttle. And uh, as soon as I put my foot on the ledge of the shuttle, and I was facing the driver, Uh, It was like an Apollo rocket on your head, an incredible sound, absolutely incredible sound. At 0937, uh, American 77 was slamming into the building, and uh, uh, I was facing the driver, and and my face was turned towards getting a seat. We're talking milliseconds here, so uh, all I can recollect is the sound. That has remained with me to this day. I've never heard anything like it before in my life, and it did cause, actually, partial hearing loss. Uh, so my doc- doctors at Walter Reed actually told me I'm, I'm darn lucky. And I said, why doc? And he said, well, sir, you, you your, torso was in the shuttle. Uh, now it didn't because you and the driver were in the front of the shuttle. If you got it the worst in the front of the shuttle, as far as the shock was concerned, but uh, um, essentially because your torso was in the shuttle, it absorbed some of the shock. So it could have been much, much worse, frankly, uh, had I just, and we're talking milliseconds here. I will tell you, everybody who had their seats, including the driver, uh, had a full view of American 77 slamming into the building. And I remember once we regained our hearing, uh, it it took a few seconds. but felt like an eternity because we're yelling at each other. Uh, And I was yelling. I was saying at the time, was that a truck bomb? You know? that's what I was yelling. And, and as soon as we crossed the bridge, we were ge- regaining some semblance of our hearing. And they were yelling back at me, telling me, no, no, it was a plane. It was a plane, man. And, uh, wow. and uh, that was a uh, very, very personal uh, impact on me for, for the, my beginning of the global war on terrorism, frankly. Uh, uh, professionally, uh, there was a dire need, and I mean dire, for Arabic linguists right after 9-11, particularly with clearances. Uh, and uh, uh, I, even though I was expecting not to graduate from uh, the Joint Military Intelligence College, I, I was actually allowed to stay on uh, because classes thankfully were in the evening, but uh, I, I came in in order to help with the uh, the effort and the lead up uh, because of my uh, ability to uh, speak, read, and. And, uh, and understand the Arabic language. I actually came to the Navy with two dialects of Arabic, and I then trained my ear during the war on terrorism to acquire proficiency in about a total of about six or seven dialects of Arabic uh, during my military career. Um, uh, as soon as I graduated, Ashley, I ended up with uh, uh, Secretary Don Rumsfeld, late Secretary of Defense. Uh, I ended up being uh, his director for North Africa and Egypt, and assistant director for Arabian Gulf Affairs for, for four years, from 2002 to 2006. And I could sit and do another two, three hours just on that experience in incredible four years. Uh, I did t- about 22 bilaterals US, uh, North Africa, US Morocco, US Algeria, uh, US Egypt, US Saudi Arabia, just 22 bilateral military bilaterals. So, constantly traveled back and forth to the region. During my tenure uh, with the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, um, my, uh, my colleagues told me, don't worry about Libya, nothing happens in Libya. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> on my watch, uh, essentially, uh, Qaddafi uh, decided to give up his weapons of mass destruction. So mm-hmm. uh, I was part, privileged to be part of an interagency team that uh, developed the uh, confidence building measures, if you will, that gradually disarmed. Uh, the Libyan dictator uh, of weapons of mass destruction. I, I also was part of uh, as director for North African Egypt. Uh, I had to spend a lot of hours with my interagency colleagues, none of this Jack Ryan stuff it's all an interagency team. Okay, it's all, it's, all, it's all teamwork, even to get seal team six on target required really almost 15 years if not a decade mm-hmm. or more of men and women working long hours chasing chasing after ghosts sometimes and dead ends to get them finally on target is the reality of the business. And uh, in my case, uh, I spent a lot of time on Congress, uh, rep- representing Secretary Rumsfeld and Mr. Wolfowitz, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, views on uh, establishing formal bilateral relationships with Algeria. And we finally did that in May of 2005, and it netted a opportunity uh, for us to uh, dismantle terrorism in the Sahel. So I was very privileged to be part of, uh, of, of playing a role, if you will, in dismantling a group called the Selfish Group for Propagation and Combat. And of course, regrettably, those that uh, survived that became uh, Al-Qaeda and the land of Islamic Maghreb. Uh, also as assistant director for Arabian Gulf Affairs, I had to go back to my hometown, Riyadh, a lot uh, in order to uh, um, assist with the bilaterals there and and, uh, and our agreements there to counter terrorism there. And in this case, we were working on essentially uh, uh, dealing with uh, the the first manifestation of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which actually had its origins in central Saudi Arabia. And uh, uh, those that survived that went south and became AQAP or Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula that we know today uh, in Yemen. Uh, essentially, I uh, uh, once once I left this uh, secretary. Oh, by the way, one thing I'm very proud of, very obscure, but very proud of. Uh, I was part, I played a role in the Luger mission. It's named after the late uh, Indiana Senator Dick Lugar. Uh, the president had selected him to be the envoy to the Western Sahara. And uh, essentially, uh, he was part of our effort as an interagency team to gain the freedom of 404 Moroccan prisoners of war that were held by the Polisario, And uh, I had I'd interacted with the prisoners and some of them had been in captivity for three decades in the Sahara. So, uh, But it was very satisfying to to gain their freedom. Uh, I left uh, the secretary of service in 06, and I then joined the Defense Intelligence Agency. Specifically, I joined what is known as the Joint Intelligence Task Force for Combating Terrorism. And now today, that organization is called the Defense Combating Terrorism Center. It's the uh, analytic counterterrorism arm of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I pretty much remained most of my career affiliated with uh, with the DCTC, or the Defense Combating Terrorism Center, um, until my retirement in, in January 2022, uh, during my time at DCTC, uh, uh, essentially uh, contributed to our efforts uh, to combat uh, al-Qaeda-associated movements and, uh, of course, to deal with uh, ISIS, the, the ebb and flow of ISIS, if you will, and the physical caliphate of ISIS. Uh, and then, of course, uh, dealing with various threats from, uh, non, from proxies that are attempting to undermine America's security. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, in a nutshell, my 20 20- years- <laughs> That's year the premiere. nutshell? <laughs> the cliff <laughs>
2: notes, ladies and gentlemen. That's yeah, the nutshell? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I thought it was I, the- I, 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 all I can say is, is I was at the right time at the right moment with the right mm-hmm. mentors sure. and, the right, and the right skills. And I, I mean, that's, uh,
2: that's- Very powerful.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I would I would reflect
2: uh, on all these milestones. Wow. Go ahead. Jeff. that
1: that was a lot. I've you've got I was going through like uh, the info we had on you and what I was going to ask next. But
0: it's there. So everybody. Oh, good.
1: Everybody knows. So thanks for coming on this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did. I I have a couple. I I take notes sometimes. Please. your twelve dialects. I can barely understand most Americans.
0: Here is it. Yeah, I, I wish it was twelve, but it's it's about half that actually. Oh, six. Okay, yeah, sorry, six. six. Six dialects Arabic. Yeah, uh, I just maybe speaking uh, uh, Egyptian. Uh, by the way, I'm an American by birth, and I, and I, I at the age of five is when I moved to Riyadh. With oh, my nice. Parents. So I absorbed the Arabic language as a kid, and uh, however, my first language is English. Okay. So, but uh, I, I came in the Navy, speaking. Which which Egyptian. American
1: accent is that? I don't yeah, that's a good. Words.
0: That's a good question. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's it's changed. It's evolved over time, and it depends. When you said hard. Man. I'm getting East Coast. Where'd you grow up? Well, uh, yeah, I I I can do East Coast if I'm marinated at it, in it. But I will tell you, I'm a graduate of Ole Miss, University of Mississippi.
1: Oh, there. As soon as you and, said Ole
0: Miss, it came yep, back. Yeah. And I also went to grad school there in Arkansas, is. University of Arkansas. And mm-hmm. uh, and once, if I spend any long time in Oxford any, or in Memphis, uh, eventually I will start speaking like a Southern. You'll start yalling it up. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you'll start saying y'all a lot. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, also, in some ways, uh, thank God I'm still not living in the South. The food's so darn good, but oh my God, it's going to kill you. you know? <laughs> I can hear the accent is coming
1: out now. There um, it is. There it you. is. So I, I, I loved hearing, um, I'm trying to make sure I say it the right way, the 9-11 Please. story. I don't know if you know that we did a, a series on uh, of those, mm-hmm. and it kind of took me back to mm-hmm. the nine eleven series that I hope we 're going to link to uh, with this episode, and I think whenever we talk about we should reference th- this episode because that was a really close um, encounter with a scenario that we all just kind of know about and i 'm going want to get back into that, but I want to make sure that I get an anecdote in we Please. both i i I was I was on the Guam for a bit. We don't talk about when, but I also saw it and I'm gonna find the link and have Holly put it in the show notes. I watched it get sunk on purpose on YouTube. Oh no.
0: <laughs> on YouTube, it's now a reef. Oh,
1: oh. It's a yeah, reef. No, I,
0: I, yeah, I've heard about that, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. and you can watch it. The yeah. jets come in and they sink it. And I'm yep. like, I swabbed that deck for nothing, but it's... <laughs> uh... <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, so that's that's amazing. So. The, the, you affected, you were in part of a lot of history with your, with your job, with your jobs, and you continued with writing. So your, yeah, your, your legacy of affecting things is infinite. Can you, can you talk about your writing and, sure. and what, what subject matters you're, you're Definitely. doing and what the, what you hope, that legacy uh, will be? Thank you, Jeff. I
0: appreciate that uh, indeed. Um, uh, I have to tell you that uh, I had been writing since college. So for instance, I, I used to maintain a book column in the Daily Mississippian, uh, our campus newspaper. Just So I've, I've always been that kind of, uh, had that passion for writing, for language, both spoken and written. And I always work on it. I Even to this day, I'm constantly working on Because it's one of those things, if you don't use it, you lose it. You atrophy. So you got to keep working on it, if you will, both the written and and spoken word. And uh, in in my case, uh, in the military, uh, again, it's the right time and the right place. Uh, I entered the United States military in the the 90s. And uh, coincidentally, completely coincidentally, uh, Arab generals in the 90s, for some darn reason, were coming out with their memoirs all of a sudden. And and, and, and I, I gotta be honest with you, I made it my business to introduce American military readers to their perspectives and their views. Now, I will tell you, I did get my writing start with the Army. And the reason being is, is when I was a Lieutenant Junior grade, I had approached various Navy publications with this idea of exposing uh, these uh, Arab generals' perspectives uh, from the Arab-Israeli conflict, Algerian generals, even a Hamas operative came out with his memoir, memoirs. Uh, for some reason, and I made, and I came to went to the Navy and, and I said I'd like to I'd like to expose this to American military readers. And there wasn't much interest, so I, I went I went and deployed with the fleet, came back, and then I uh, went to the Army, and the Army has embraced me. So my 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 initial writings of book reviews and and essays. And and frankly, this whole idea of of exposing American military readers to to the ideas of Arab generals and military thinkers um, uh, started with with, uh, the Army publications like Military Review, Infantry, Armor, uh, and it's been an amazing success. I got to tell you, uh, two of my series, an essay series, one that appeared in Infantry and one that appeared in Armor, became actually two books. But uh, my very first—I I, I had the great privilege of in my 28 years of active duty, uh, and I didn't plan it this way. But essentially, I had published or co-authored and co-authored seven books uh, on active duty. And uh, uh, my very first one uh, was a monograph, uh, 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 how opportune! Currently, uh, on Ayman Al Zawari, who at the time in 2004, when I published the monograph for the Air University Press. Uh, was the deputy leader of Al-Qaeda. And I had published it 18 months after 9-11. Uh, there was such a hunger for uh, knowledge about this adversary that uh, I decided to buckle down and write this monograph for Air University Press. It was actually partly inspired by the work of Dr. Gerald Post of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was, uh, he's considered the father uh, of leadership analysis. Uh, in, in the intelligence community, and uh, he actually wrote for Air University Press, the late Dr. Post, and I was inspired by his work on Saddam Hussein, that I said, hey, I'd, I'd like to write something on Zawahri, and uh, that was the idea for the very first one, first, very first kind of book monograph in 2004. Uh, shortly after that, I actually, uh, at the same uh, same year, 2004, maybe even 2005, I published uh, what's known as the Islamic Rulings on Warfare. i had co-authored it with Dr. Sharifa Zuhur. Uh, and uh, the Army War College actually published that, uh, Army War College Press. And essentially what that book is, is that uh, booklet m- or monograph is, we, me and, and Dr. Zahour are using Islamic-based argumentation and interpretations to uh, essentially uh, undermine uh, al-Qaeda ideology and their use of fragments of the Islamic faith in order to essentially uh, drive their own perverse agendas. So uh, that's what the Islamic rulings on warfare was. And of course, uh, after that, I had a, a little bit of a break from books, but I did publish a lot of essays in between and book reviews in between in military publications, uh, including a 1998 poem in the Marine Corps Gazette there, Jeff. So, uh, But, uh, yep. Wait, a po- did you say a poem? I did write a poem for the Marine Corps Gazette in 1998. It's called Rediscovering the Desert. And it re- reflects on my time in the Western desert in Egypt uh, with the 24th Marine Marine Expeditionary Unit. But I also published a few, one or two essays uh, with the Marine Corps Gazette. But uh, uh, in 2010 is the book I'm best known for. And uh, five of my seven books are published by Naval Institute Press uh, out of Annapolis. And uh, and the book is Militant Islamist Ideology, Understanding the Global Threat. And that's the book I'm best known for. And uh, what that book primarily delves into, it's, it, the reason the book came about is several fold. One, uh, I was dealing with essentially two extremes in the debate about what to do regarding jihadi groups, two extremes. And those extremes are just outright dangerous to protect America. And, and you know those extremes. Uh, one extreme is all Islam is evil. Well, that's 1.6, 1.7 billion people that's a fifth of humanity. You can't deduce effective strategies to protect America with that viewpoint. Now, that viewpoint may sell you books because, after all, fear sells, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may you know, uh, reward you in other ways because, frankly, the, the titillating and tantalizing seems to attract more money for folks and opportunities for folks. But it doesn't protect America uh, because in, my, in our business, we need our Muslim partners in, in the war on terrorism. And the other extreme, of course, is Islam is peace. That's another extreme that's completely analytically worthless as well. Uh, uh, So uh, um, uh, essentially, I was trying to develop a model in order for us to reduce the complexity of 1.6 billion Muslims into something where we can actually pay attention and and focus on the actual threats to our country and, and not alienate partners that we need, Muslim partners that we need. Uh, Another reason I published that book was because uh, after training thousands of troops going to Iraq, Afghanistan, HOA, Horn of Africa, uh, for for various missions, I began to get a a common theme uh, from the enlisted, mainly. Not the officers, per se, but the enlisted. and It went something like this. Sir. You know, my, my superior calls it Islamofascism, my general calls it Islam, my other general calls it Islamic fundamentalism. I even got uh, a, a senior NCO say, I don't understand this, sir, but why is it that I'm in the same unit and the company officer has a different description of the threat than this, the, the, the unit commander, the 06? Why can't you have you officers come up with language to, you know, to define the threat without, you know, so we can understand it better? And at the time I had no answers. So I pondered that question for the better part of a year, year and a half. And I, it only took me 11 months. And I published a manuscript, Militant Islamist Ideology, answering those complex questions. And in the book, essentially, I disaggregate um, the threat. And I say, you've got to uh, distinguish between violent or militant Islamists in plural from Islamists in plural, and disaggregate those two from Islam, 1.6 billion people hmm. who have a diversity of interpretation of, of what their faith is or is not. Um, and then I go on to uh, define those terms. You can't just say those terms, you gotta define those terms. Right. So for instance, a, a, a militant Islamist is a group individual organization who's attempting to impose an Islamic social order in their image, in their image, on Muslims and non-Muslims alike through violence or conspiracy to commit violence. Folks, that, that's, that was, that's, the, that's the bulk of my career, countering various manifestations of that. Um, so what are Islamists? Islamists have various notions of what an Islamic social order should look like in their respective images, but they typically want to impose that on Muslims and non-Muslims alike through non-violent means. And uh, those, that non-violent means can can take, uh, can take uh, the form of just cheerleading various terrorist groups on social media. that's all they do. As long as they haven't shown tangible support to conspiracy to commit violence, then, you, then you're not a violent Islamist. You know that's the kind of the line, the edge, if you will. All the way to organizations like the Turkish AK Party. I mean, who do you think we've been talking to for the last 20, 20, 22 years? That's an Islamist political party. very different from the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood with its over nine-decade history, very different from the Tunisian Annada party. And then you've got Islam, Islam, 1.6 billion people who are like the rest of humanity, who, who cannot agree on how to, uh, you know, practice their day-to-day uh, religion uh, in their own private and personal affairs. And that's why you have a whole cacophony. So you can't just say Sunni or Shia. Saying Sunni or Shia is like saying Protestant Orthodoxy. You got to go deep, you know, you mm-hmm. see. So... Uh, so that's really the book, Milton Islam*, that I'm best known for. And right. I, I wasn't expecting to publish uh, the next book. Uh, the, the, the next book was uh, Iraq in Turmoil. And how that book began was initially a serial, a serialized uh, a series of essays uh, that was published in Armor Magazine. And uh, where I'm introducing the ideas of the father of Iraqi sociology, who I discovered through troops in Iraq who were actually saying to me that some detainees were actually reading this material. You see, Uh, terrorist detainees were reading this material. So uh, I went to the Library of Congress, Middle East Reading Room and asked for the book. And the guy came out with seven volumes called Social Glimpses of Iraqi Military History. And it turned out that that was a seminal work in Arabic of, of, of uh, who did what to whom uh, in Iraq going all the way to the arrival of the Ottomans until the founding of the uh, kingdom of Iraq, uh, the Iraqi kingdom of the 19, after, World War, after World War I, if you will. Uh, so essentially what happened was is uh, I had uh, I was sitting in my office, and I'm getting calls from the field from Iraq. Sir, are you, are, you that, are you writing this stuff on, on Iraq in, in, in armor? And I said, yes, I am. Uh, it's me. Uh, well, sir, we're, we're actually training and orienting troops using your essays. And I'm like, wow, that's exactly why I wrote this. This is exactly what I'm doing. I even told the caller, this is better than metals. You know, this is exactly what I'm, I'm doing here. And uh, he said, sir, do you, do you think armor is going to publish a handy dandy special edition for us out here in Iraq? I said, uh, because we're, we're chasing different editions of armor, trying to piece together your, your, your series. So I went to the editor and the editor, you know, you know, took note, but nothing was happening. So I was having dinner with my publisher at Naval Institute Press. And uh, he told me, uh, nope, I have it from here. And he negotiated with the army. He negotiated with Arbor. armor. And the 11 essays became 11 chapters in Iraq and turmoil that was published in 2012. And uh, in 2013, I, I published a book called uh, Secret War for the Middle East that deals with allied and access access intelligence operations in the Middle East. I could co authored that book, Secret War for the Middle East. And uh, that came out in, in 2013. And uh, again, another surprise book came out in 2014, a year later. It's called Reconstructing a Shattered Egyptian Army. In that book, uh, essentially, it began life as, a, again, a serialized uh, number of essays, in, now this time an infantry journal, in the U.S. Army Infantry Journal. And uh, I, uh, I was trying to introduce American military readers to the ideas of the Egyptian Minister of Defense, General Mohammed Fawzy, very unique individual in that he actually took over as Minister of Defense during a war. As this, during the Six Day War, during the 1967 war, is when he took over as defense minister. And that's really rare for a, a, either a, a defense minister to take over while a conflict is ensuing. But he's unique among Arab generals there, Jeff, because he 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 goes rock bottom. You know, I mean he he's scathingly critical of Egyptian arms, scathingly. And that's unique. You don't see that. And uh, and it, wh- why he did that essentially was he had to mentally get rock bottom as to why the Egyptian army f- failed dismally in the Six-Day War in 1967. So they get, then he can reconstruct that army, if you will. And uh, he, it, it, I wanted to introduce his ideas. And so it appeared in Infantry and that, of course, Infantry Journal noticed what, what Armour got with the book, Iraq and Turmoil, and they wanted essentially the same deal. So Naval Institute published Reconstructing a Shattered Egyptian Army um, that introduces Fawzi's ideas to wider American military readership. In um, the, uh, the, the, the book, the last book I published before leaving active duty is the book I hope will, I'll be known for, because it's the book I had to write. Now, luckily I retired on New Year's uh, Day 2022 So the book came out in 2019, so I mission accomplished ahead of schedule, but it's the book I had to write, and uh, it's called Middle East 101, uh, 101 Essential Questions on the Middle East for Deploying Troops. And question one is antiquity, and question 101 is the downfall of the ISIS caliphate, when you get to question 99, 100, now it's more current events, if you will. And I got to tell you that me and my, my co-author, Joe Stanek, uh, who, by the way, wrote a definitive book on El Dorado Canyon for Naval Institute Press. We actually knew each other by our books. He read militant Islamist Ideology. I read his book on Eldorado Canyon. And our, the publisher was, was good friends with both of us. And he got us together at, at Naval Institute Press uh, at, the, at their building at Annapolis, and uh, at the academy, they're on the grounds of the academy, and uh, essentially said, hey, we'd we like you to come up with Middle East 101, 101 Essential Questions for Deploying Troops. And you're the right people to do it. And, uh, and, I, uh, and it was a challenge, actually, because the good, the good, the good thing is Joe Stanick and I were, were fantastic. We were a great fit. He had actually retired after a career in the Navy, a generation ahead of me, if you will, uh, serving in the Middle East. And I'm currently still active duty, dealing with the Middle East. So that was a very nice overlap. What's what, what's really good is that Joe had retired from the Navy and spent a career teaching social studies and history uh, to uh, high school and junior high school students. So he he was really able to help me with the with what really Naval Institute's mandate was, which essentially they said to us: we don't want you to be professorial, all right. We want you to answer the questions in such a way that you are, for lack of a better term, intellectually seducing that reader to actually put your book aside, or actually before they put your book aside, read the back of your book to see, because every chapter has a recommended DVD or book, and have them just essentially look at the DVD or read the book, and then come back to another question. And if through that we create the next man uh uh, 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 service man or woman who'll be the next foreign area officer intelligence officer or expert on the middle east that's what victory looks like and uh, and that took us three and a half years actually to 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 actually compile into to to, well you
1: said i want to make sure i want to make sure we don't run out of time no Um, please come here yeah (laughs) let's uh, uh i only have one question if you can answer it in like Three sentences so we can get to promoting you to get up. Um, sounds like a lot of these books you had a lot of inside information, background information. Was there, and with your job and your clearances, do these books have to be approved? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, every single one of them, right? Absolutely, not the poem, no no. no
0: question, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm very fortunate, uh, the, the publisher, Naval Institute Press. Also teaches at, uh, as adjunct at the Naval War College. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's how I actually met originally. he would He would invite me invite me as a guest okay. speaker. and we we have an understanding that uh, I, I do not submit a manuscript unless it has been cleared. Okay. And, uh, and, and what's great about my agency is that he, they they provide clear I mean, one-stop shopping. so you get clearance from the Pentagon as well as from the intelligence community. And I, I got to tell you that uh, uh, in my career, uh, I've had a great relationship with, with uh, congressional affairs, public affairs, because a lot of times I'm asked to go and speak to congressional staffers. So I have a, lot, a good relationship with them. Uh, in addition, I got to tell you, I uh, I was part of the Manning court-martial. I was a subject matter expert on al-Qaeda, testifying in PFC Manning's court-martial. So I was literally after after the aftermath of that court-martial, I was literally chained to the public affairs officer but well, we we did a episode on on manning but
1: i want to um i want to make sure before we get out of here because yeah we are uh that people know how to get your books i i don't yes. think they're all on amazon are they
0: oh and they're all, if,
1: absolutely they're on
0: amazon you can find oh. them on amazon you can also find them on naval institute on their website okay uh, naval institute press on their website where can i find that poem yeah I'm sorry say I get the poem where can I find that oh uh you know I don't know that'll be more of a challenge I'm sure, not sure if you need to go to a library now to put some back edition of 1998 edition of Marine Corps Gazette uh where's that poem. look at look at Holly she's
1: she's on the she's on she's the on it she's on the task
2: I'll find it she's like I'll watch <laughs> me all
1: right okay. you have a goodbye uh Ashley Marie
2: I just want to say I have I have learned so much and I let me know if you're given any like lectures at any of the universities or whatever, because I, I find all of this fascinating. You have had an extraordinary career. It's incredible when opportunity and preparation meet and you are like the you are like the star child of values of, of like everything wow. that you've done did. with your career as impacted an entire I, just, I mean, let's be honest, like you've opened an entire paradigm to another way of life that other folks may not have under, ever yeah, understood. And right? I,
0: I got to tell you, if I didn't have some fantastic mentors, men and women, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in civilian, reserve, active duty, uh, NCO and officers, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be here, uh, frankly, uh, and, I, and I'd like to say, too, to my fellow legendaries, I'm, I'm glad to join your ranks and to be one mm-hmm. of your newest members. I I, I, I took advantage and, and squeaked right in. Uh, I want to say it was like two or three months while I was still on active duty so I could take advantage of the active duty rates. Uh, Do you want to give them <laughs> a shout
1: out real quick before we go?
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm your, sorry. So your post, do you want to give your post a shout out? Oh, absolutely. I'd like to say uh, hi to post 11, Francis Scott Key post. And uh, hopefully you'll be seeing much, much more of me when I pass my comprehensive exam <laughs> so I can write my doctoral dissertation in your tombstone quiet library upstairs he was telling <laughs> us
1: about that 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 was the best feature well i yeah, want to thank you as well for for coming thank you. here thank and you, um, i appreciate and it holly
0: thank you for setting this all up
1: uh, oh holly
0: they they can't see oh. hers but no that's right it's really right. super
1: producer holly's behind yeah. the She curtain. makes the magic happen yes <laughs> she does so thank you so much for coming on here spreading um your perspective on other people's perspectives and making sure that we uh all have the opportunity To know exactly what's going on, and if you're out there with big opinions, you should probably go find the facts to back those up or be. smart and egotistically distant enough to change your mind if need be, Uh, thank you so much we're going to recap what we're going to recap what we've heard here today but we're going to do that after the break selfless service
0: the american legion celebrates all who contribute to something larger than themselves
2: and inspires others to serve and strengthen america we are veterans strengthening america we are the american legion
1: and we're back uh ashley we learned a lot today do you have any takeaways
2: so i was really um like i had this moment where yusuf was talking about his time and his experience um with his with the shuttle at uh waiting for the shuttle i was thinking for, it was for uh Boeing air force base and having that american flight like 77 like you know crashed into the building like right behind him it was so interesting. Like I felt like we were back doing all the interviews for our 2020 series for 9/11 uh, Patriot Day, and I, I like I got chills. I got chills thinking about how you're just so close to all of that, and then all of the other guests that we've interviewed and since passed. Uh, but such an impressive individual, right? Like if that was anyone's pivot point, like wow. As a linguist, as someone who has gone through all of the defense intelligence, just agency, you know, criteria trainings, the books he's written. I mean, he's doing, he was doing and still is doing some cutting edge stuff for a very niche community. And he's a subject matter expert and it was really insightful to hear from him today.
1: I mean, I I don't know what else to say. You did a summary of his whole appearance, so. You
2: ask me every time and I do this every time. This is not new.
1: Yeah, but then, I don't have a takeaway because oh. you took them all away from me. You can by so yourself. Saying... I'm not going to judge you.
2: <laughs> no. this is a no-judge <laughs> zone. You, you list. Ev- you, you
1: list everything that we talk. He writes books. He was a linguist. He got blown up. He. That's did my <laughs>
2: takeaway. If you want to do it, you go first. Then I'd I'm so repeat so from myself. now, I'll
1: just say, uh, what is your single greatest takeaway? My single greatest takeaway from the single is now because you took everything, I'm going to encapsulate them all into my single greatest takeaway is the man's uh, ability to stand up in every moment of time where there is an opportunity for greatness. And he seizes those opportunities for greatness. And it reads, or he, he, you listen to it, and it's like you're experiencing a, a novel or a script. Uh, because it's just moment to moment when other people would not have made the same choices or taken the same opportunities to serve and to aspire to greatness. This man did it. And that's and I applaud that. All right. We're done with we're done with our takeaways. Mm -hmm. All right. Are we going to are we going to load up or what are we going to do?
2: Can we call it like rapid fire something seasonal do well, we have anything clever you have anything clever on the top of your head like pew pew but like i think i like no no no
1: i mean the, the 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 rapids the fires are are pretty seasonal That's um good. except for one but Yay. i can make it i can make it seasonal so right now oh you're gonna love this one Ooh. It involves the national guard.
2: Yay! We just had a birthday. You're welcome, America.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> what? We're all just branch. That's Recognized. a present.
1: I that Recognized, that little Jeff. ditty was that little ditty was a present. I wish we could rewrap for you, America. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry uh. that you had to. Sorry that you had to hear that in the key of something. All right, and. And I'm gonna, there's some names of cities and things in this that I'm going to probably mess up, but the key of Ashley G. All right. In uh, Nisquit, Nisku, suit I'm gonna say suit It's N U I K S U T, Alaska. The weather outside <laughs> was frightful. Ah, they had frightful. School children in the northern Alaskan Inupiat. Community of Nuiksut were so delighted for a visit by Santa that they braved wind chills of 25 degrees below zero just to see him on a snow covered airstrip. Once again, it was time for Operation Santa Claus in Alaska. And here in Nuiksut, a roadless village of about 460 residents on Alaska's oil rich north slope, the temperatures may have been plunging, but the children were warming quickly. Never mind that Santa left Rudolph at home to catch a ride on Alaska Air National Guard cargo plane in Nuiqsut, just 30 frosty miles south of the Arctic Ocean. Here, just a reindeer skipping a hop from the North Pole, the students were abuzz with good cheer. Some of them went out on the deck and they were jumping up and down, excited to see the plane coming in, said Principal Lee, oh my, Karasiewicz, how's that? all right Uh,
2: okay love
1: it somebody's if somebody's up there in in the weak suit you can correct my pronunciation of both your city and your school principal please back to the story principal lee of the trapper school as he kept watch over pupils from the 160 student k-12 facility privileged to get a pre-christmas visit from the jolly can i say this from the jolly fat one are we allowed to do that the gravitationally challenged what can i say (laughs) they knew right away by the size of the plane who was on that plane the principal said of the students what do you think of operation santa claus what do you think of national guard what do you think of the temperature what do you think
2: i think all the things personally but you know I think Operation Santa Claus is is lovely I think it brings joy to children especially in dreary weather conditions being that close to the arctic ocean <laughs> no thank you like but for those kids like that's amazing and this is a uh, of course something that's was brought back and um I think uh, the article goes on to talk about how it was began in like 1956 and how you know by just one of the residents of the community so it's really cool to see that tradition continuing forward and you know, that's that's a shared memory for generations of, of folks in that town. And that's really special. And it's honestly, I don't think I've ever seen like, uh, you know, the big man Santa, like coming in on a helicopter or any sort of like, you know, vehicle of sorts, but sounds lovely. I'm down for it. Like, I'd, I would enjoy it wholeheartedly.
1: Except for the 25 below.
2: Yeah, I'd be bundled up. I, I'm going to need a lot of gear. You need some gear. I'm going to need this. And some more discs and you know that. And yeah, I'm just gonna bundle up.
1: All right. This is uh this is something we've we've kind of covered before. Oh, you know what we didn't do today? What? This section of our show. Pew pew
2: pew pew pew. Oh no. So that
1: was Rapid Fire One, ladies and gentlemen. We are silly on eggnog, maybe? Can we say? Are we yeah, I don't know. All right, know. let's do rapid fire number pew pew two. Ah, this is about the Veteran Service Recognition Act of 2022. We've done some, uh, we did an immigration thing before really early. I found it season one, episode 17, Mm -hmm. that I'm sure will be in the show notes. You'll see Mark Seavey on there giving, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: giving his legal perspective, I believe, if I remember properly. All right. American Legion supported legislation that would provide an easier path to returning to the United States for deported veterans and early opportunities for non-service members to apply for naturalization past the House of Representatives on December 6th. There's a lot here. I'm not going to read through all of this, but it's past the House. It's on its way to the Senate. What do we think?
2: Exciting. Let's do it. Awesome. Great. Everybody make stuff happen. Gosh. Because
1: I've, I've heard horror stories of the way people, they get out and military is not interested in what you have to do when you get out they're more interested in trying to talk you into staying That's so true. the the paperwork doesn't all get done and then they get out and there's a limited time to get it done and then and if you don't they, know what you
2: need it's yeah it's a whole thing and, and if they
1: do anything like jaywalk they're out of here i mean it's you saw that there's a netflix series on there um Look at look at Mark with a mask on in the the preview here. Um, it's so if if you're there, you're, it's season one, episode seventeen, about twenty eight minutes thirty five seconds into it. We we talk about the Netflix episode where that uh, Marine was deported and basically had to sneak back in the country to go beg the governor um, to uh, pardon him for a. Marijuana possession, he left a state where it was legal, was going to a state where it was legal, but got pulled over, and uh, that got him deported. Just, your medals mean nothing to me, your valor. Get out. So hopefully this fixes it.
2: Yeah, we have a very broken immigration system, and for years, it's just, honestly, it's it's just...
1: mm-hmm okay. so mm-hmm. i just think it's i think it's particularly uh frustrating when it involves people who served, served. the country and were promised promised yeah. citizenship and we need to we need to um right no matter where to, you're born you yep.
2: wore the uniform
1: and if you if if it's part of your service it's part of you i mean, i just don't understand how this has taken so long, but it's we're on the path towards solvency. So happy new year, potentially, for all these people to get their rightful place as American citizens. All right. I don't know if you know this about, I didn't know this about Hanukkah. It was, oh, rapid fire. Oh, super producer Holly's reminding me about the finger guns. Pew, 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 pew. That was four. Sorry. Pew, pew, pew. Rapid fire number three. I don't know if we knew this. The the Hanukkah was actually derived from military victory. Did you know this?
2: I did not. Let's dig, let's get into it.
1: I let's like just this. yeah. Uh, the oil that fueled the Hanukkah miracle. This was on NPR. For eight days, Jews celebrate a miracle that occurred about twenty two hundred years ago. Here's the story in a nutshell. A tire- a tyrant king from Damascus had ruled over the Jews and forced them to worship Greek gods. Jewish rebels fought for their freedom for three years, and victorious reclaimed the body, the sorry, rec, and victorious reclaimed the holy temple in Jerusalem. Now to rededicate the temple, they needed oil to light the menorah, but they could only find enough to keep the flames burning for one night. And here's the miracle. The oil lasted for eight days. In that time, they were able to make more oil and keep the eternal flame lit. This is an interview on NPR, and uh, she, or she introduces Dr. Raphael Frankel, who is an Israeli archaeologist who taught at the University of Haifa. He wouldn't confirm the miracle, but he is certain the oil was pressed from olives. Olive oil, the holy oil, as I will now call it. Uh, I I love including all, the, all of uh, the legionnaires of different faiths, and this is a great story that I'd never heard until uh, researching for stories for this. I've also been to Haifa, but I did not visit the University of Haifa. Now I'm feeling like I missed out, and I need to go back and speak to Dr. Raphael Frankel. So what do you think?
2: I love when we can include uh, historical Snapple facts and share with people uh, different cultures. What did you just say? Snapple facts. Like, this is a cool history Snapple fact that, like, people didn't know, like, what the history was.
1: I get the history part, but Snapple fact?
2: Yeah, you've never had, like, a Snapple and, like, you did the cat and then there would be, like, a fun fact on it oh wow Never participated in that maybe i mean i haven't had a
1: snapple in decades but
2: i don't know i make weird references sometimes people either get it or they don't a lot of them are just obscure movies from the 90s and 80s and like cult classics and people look at me like i'm just and then they're like oh i know that movie and then they like start talking about it and i'm like oh and then i'll say the next line and they have no idea what i'm talking about i'm like just when you don't know just tell me don't i will i get i get excited and then i get let down but Snapple facts ladies and gentlemen and this is an important cultural you know factoid about um a large portion of our you know our troops who are jewish so very cool
1: including and i always bring up the four chaplains and because people forget one of the four chaplains was in fact a rabbi so uh very important to the american legion we we should include this story on Ford Chaplin's evening. All right, I think that's it. Woo! we made it! I got more eggnog. I actually don't drink eggnog. I can't keep going on with that joke. Uh, I I think it's the name. It j- I just never wanted. I've never wanted to consume something called eggnog.
2: It's really good. I have some in my fridge. I've baked cookies. I have eggnog. I have a hot cocoa bar. I've had friends over for like hot cocoa. Oh yeah, it's been it's been a whole ordeal. My whole house is decorated. I'm just so happy, except for your days. set. Like, so happy. What? Except, for, except what? for
1: your set. Your set isn't decorated.
2: You know, I thought about stringing some lights up, but then I was like, that would require me to go outside and take some of my actual lights down to move because I would have to go. I would have to literally physically. Go. I'm a very calculated decorator it is a superpower so i have just enough light strands to get exactly where i need to be i don't have any extra all right everything gets out oh of
1: the tote oh anymore. you oh you have extra all right so that is a great opportunity for us to roll on out of here why don't you wrap this show up in a bow put it in a sleigh so we can fly on home
2: Okay. All right. So don't forget to subscribe to the Tango Alpha Lima podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are consuming your podcasts. Please leave us a review and give us a big old five-star rating so the world knows how much you love us. If you do have a guest recommendation, which we highly encourage, please visit the legion.org backslash Tango Alpha Lima website and click on the suggested guest link. And we look forward to hearing from you.
1: Oh. Well, this, actually, I don't know if you know, this is the last episode of the season. It is. The next one will be in January. Um, Alpha's out there. I want you to have a Alpha Merry Christmas, and I want you to share the Alpha love. I want you to tango some gifts and uh, leave 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 them around so that other people can enjoy their Alpha status in the new year, which I know. Is everyone's New Year's resolution? And don't forget, if you're gonna if you're gonna be in Florida, we are going to be at the SVA Natcon. Is it hashcon? Hashtag Natcon. Hashtag Natcon 2023. Do they put the year? Yeah. Hashtag Natcon 2023. If you wanna see if you wanna see these faces in person live in Florida uh maybe have to rescue us from a gator i don't know alphas jump in and save us we love that and we love you so merry christmas happy new year and we're gonna see you in 2023
2: happy holidays